This morning, we begin a new series called Unfiltered, and what we're talking about are snapshots from the Word of God. So among all the books ever written, the Bible is absolutely unique, because actually, it's not just a book, it's 66 books all put together. And one of the most remarkable qualities of this book is the complete unity of the overall message, despite having so many different authors writing it, uh, hundreds of controversial subjects, all of these things going into one book, and we cannot naturally explain how consistent it is. It is a supernatural in character. A few weeks ago, we talked about what a miracle is. It's when the super meets the natural. And I believe the word of God is full of the supernatural. It's full of moments that we see when God meets earth. The Bible was written over a period of about 2,000 years by 40 different authors from three continents who wrote in three different languages. They were shepherds. They were kings. They were scholars, they were fishermen, they were prophets, a military general, a cupbearer, a priest, all penned portions of scripture. And they composed their works from all different places, from palaces, from prisons, from the wilderness, from places of exile. Yet, the Bible displays a flawless internal consistency. Can you imagine how this would happen? Is only because God was in the middle of it. It contains the greatest story ever told. And what I love about the scripture is it's still writing a story. Even as we sang that song this morning, this is my story, this is my song, we are living in the story that the scripture has begun to tell, a story in which every single human being takes part of. It's God's story of the creation and the redemption of mankind. And from Genesis to Revelation, from the first book to the last, we see man's repeated rebellion against his holy creator. And we watch how basically we try and mess up and God redeems us. And then we try and mess up and God redeems us. And then we try again and we mess up and God redeems us. And he makes this perfect world. But in the very beginning, mankind just continually rejects his authority and continually tries to do things ourselves. But over and over in the scripture, and and it never fails, every single time, God promises to extend his love and his grace and his mercy to unworthy people who deserve certain death. But he continues to, to, to extend that invitation. And I believe that only the one true holy God could provide us with such a flawless Bible that reveals such a matchless message. And so over these next several weeks, uh, in this sermon series, we'd like to provide for you a series of images that reveal God's story for humanity. Uh, We have condensed the word of God down to 10 images uh, that are just a kind of a broad, sweeping narrative, a big picture of God's love and design. And my hope would be that this would just give you tools to describe the scripture to anyone who might ask you, maybe even describe it to yourself. Maybe there are things you read or things you hear that you can't quite understand where they fit. And our hope is we can give you a a big look, a look down, so you can perhaps put things in categories that make sense. One of the core values of who we are as a church, one of the core values of Very First Assembly, is that we stand on the anchored truth of God's word. And I believe that if you're a believer in Jesus, you need to understand the central truths of God's word. If you don't, you, you uh, you may get 
unanchored. You, you may be tossed at the sea. So, so this is really important. This series is really important, and it's going to require you to think about things and to really engage in what God's Word is saying. And so I want to uh, ask Dennis Pistone to come up here for just a minute. Um, and he'll be teaching a Wednesday night class. We have a Wednesday night at 6.30 that meets right here in the sanctuary. We have worship, and then we have different classes. And he's going to be talking about one, uh, particularly about this topic. So tell us just a little bit about what your premise is for your class. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> in support of what we're hearing right now, I want to read a scripture. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason <clears throat> for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. If we're going to be able to give an answer, uh, to, to give the reason why we believe what we say we believe, it's going to be because of God's word, but I believe it's going to be because we understand a little bit about the opposition that comes against God's word in the world today. <clears throat> I think I counted roughly 50 or 60 kids that just went to Inside Out. The statistics tell us, and reliable, tell, re reliable research tells us that three out of four of those kids, by the time they get to be 19 to 21 years of age, they won't be standing there. They won't be standing here. They will have, for one reason or another, fallen away from their faith. That same research tells us that it's intellectual skepticism that causes them to falter, to fall away. So I believe that the more understanding we have of our own faith and the what we know to be true, the reliability of the Bible, the reliability of the scriptures, the more we understand about opposing views, the stronger we'll have. I think we've all heard the, the, the saying, knowledge is power. And I believe in this case, knowledge of not only what we know to be true, but what other people think about what we believe to be true, that that's going to give us power. We're going to be sharing Wednesday nights. I hope to see a lot of you here this Wednesday. Thanks. Thank you. You can take that with you, actually. All right. So we wanted to make sure you knew about that because it's impossible for me to share all of those things in our time that we have on Sundays. But that class will run through this whole series. So catch it even if you can't come every week. It'll be valuable even if you come as often as you can. And so let's go back to just thinking about what's happening in the Scripture. You know, Jesus and his followers were fearless when it came to proclaiming God's Word. They were just completely fearless. They knew without a shadow of a doubt that the eternal power, the absolute trustworthiness of each word in the scripture, they believed it was true. If they didn't believe it was true, it would have been very difficult for them to go out and quote it to other people and say, well, God's word says if we pray for you, you'll be healed. If they didn't believe that was true, then when they said that, they would not be able to stand up underneath their claims. And so I believe that the first question that we all have to wrestle with is do we believe the Bible is true? Do we believe that the things, the events, the, the people, the instructions are true in the Bible? Do we believe it's all true? Or do we just think part of it is true? Do, do we believe that, that all of it is, is God-inspired? Or do we think that just part of it is, is what we need to pay attention to? 
And I think this begs the question, even maybe a step back, and maybe something you've never thought about before, is how do you know anything is true? How do you decide what is true? And when deciding what is actually true, everyone must eventually appeal to an ultimate standard. The proverbial stairs end somewhere. There is something that stops at the standard of what you measure truth at. There are, there are some things that trump all things. And you decide those things, even if you're not exactly sure how you would answer that. There is something that you have decided stops with all truth. You know, even uh, secular philosophers recognize this problem. Every philosophical system starts with what they call presuppositions. They're starting points, they're assumptions. And so that Things cannot be proven, but are accepted up front as the foundation for all subsequent reasoning. There has to be. They have to choose a standard, or they have nothing to test it against. So what have you decided is your standard? Do you decide what's true based on your personal experience? Well, in my life, this is what it's been like, therefore that's true. Do you um, go with public consensus? Well, most people believe that this is how it is, so I will, I will agree with that too. Uh, do you rely on great moral literature? Do you base it on how you feel? That could change every day for some of us. Do you ask someone else you trust? Maybe it's what your parents believe or what your grandparents believe or maybe somebody that you look to that you say, well, if they think that that's true, then it must be true. Maybe it's Fox News. I don't know. I don't know what it is that you decide. If it's on Facebook, it must be true. You have, <laughs> you have determined a standard. Whether you can kind of identify that or not, you have determined a standard. And so you need to begin to think, what is it that I measure all truth against? And if any of the, these things that you measure truth against is not the word of God, then you are in danger of ruling out or dismissing God's word. If the Bible isn't your standard for truth, then you may reject some or parts of it when another standard questions it. This church believes that the Bible is true, all of it, not just parts of it, that the Bible is our standard because we believe it is written by the author of truth itself. We believe that God is the author of truth. He created truth. He is the standard of all truth. So what he says must be true. And God consistently appeals to his own word as final authority. If you read through the scripture, a good example of this is um, he promises to bless all the nations through Abraham in the Old Testament. We're going to bring up that scripture right here. And he reassures Abraham, that his words are true. And you can see in there, he appeals to himself as the highest court of appeal. So Genesis 22, 15 through 17, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies." And then in Hebrews 6.13, in the New Testament, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. 
That God is so confident in his claim that he is the highest truth that he encourages people to corroborate his word. He doesn't say, okay, don't check on my references because they might come back. You know, I don't know what you're going to find. He says, go ahead. Go ahead and check. Go ahead and cross-reference. In fact, according to Jewish law, uh, two or three witnesses were required to establish the truth of a matter in court. It is proper, it is biblical to seek additional evidence. It is important that you dig into the word of God like we talked about in that class and you decide, this is how I know this is true. And you know why God is so comfortable with you asking those questions? And he's so comfortable with saying, go ahead and corroborate, go ahead and look, go ahead and test the word of God. He is so comfortable with that because he knows that you will always come up trusting and loving him more because he is the creator and the standard of all truth. So when it comes to to proving that the scripture is true, there there is a ton of of research and a ton of things that that you could look at. Scholars um, have thousands of complete manuscripts and multiple thousands of fragmented manuscripts, parts of the New Testament, that have been archived and collected. Maybe you didn't know this, but there are more than 5,000 copies of the entire New Testament that corroborate the same message that all say the exact same thing. Comparing that to other works of ancient history, um, the the copies of the New Testament just totally outweigh any manuscript for other works. For instance, there are less than 700 copies of Homer's Iliad, but people never question that to not be true. And and only a, um, a few copies of any one work of Aristotle. But when it comes to the New Testament, It definitely has numbers on its side. There were so many that they found that all said the same exact thing, that accounted for the same exact works of Jesus. I also find it interesting um, that when uh, the early centuries of the Christian church, um, a number of scholars quoted the New Testament. Amazingly, they quoted the New Testament so much that every single verse, every single verse, of all 27 books of the New Testament is quoted by a scholar except for 11 verses. There are just 11 verses that another scholar in that time period didn't quote out of the New Testament. All within a few hundred years of the beginning of the church. And so what we have here is accurate. What we have here is infallible. We could also add that uh, much of the New Testament was written within just a few decades of the death and resurrection of Christ. And so the scripture says that there's about 500 people that, that saw all of those events happen, and then they wrote it down. And so it, it was published in the time where if people read it and said, wait, this isn't what happened, they were actually alive to agree or to criticize. There was accountability from eyewitnesses. And so there are all of these type of research that, that you could talk about for a long time and, and you could prove it. And, and, and there's so much that we could look into about how to explain the um, accuracy and the infallibility of the Word of God. But I believe ultimately we trust the Bible not because we can prove it from other sources, but because we trust the one who made us and gave us his word. We trust the one who made us and gave us his word. And if we trust him, then we can trust the word that he gave us. 
We trust that God is our standard, the God who created truth, the God who created us, the God that made a way for our redemption of all of humanity by the sacrifice of his one and only son. And if we trust him, we can trust what he says. So I want to dive into the images of this series, and we're going to go over two today, and it'll be a total of ten in the next five weeks. Um, But the first image that helps us see the big picture of the scripture is the image of a mirror. It's the image of a mirror. Now, the mirror reminds us that the entire Bible is written to show the image of God. The entire Bible is written to show the image of God. It's a reflection of the character of who God is. In fact, all of creation was made to draw us closer to God, to ignite our curiosity, to to gasp in beauty, to truly understand the nature of who Christ is. And through his Holy Spirit, God's attributes will be made visible on earth. If in Genesis, the first two chapters, God reveals that he's creative, he's creative in nature, and he crafted the universe with great purpose and great attention, but he did all those things to mirror him. And so have you ever seen like the, a picture of a really strange animal um, that, that you're thinking, why would God ever make something like that? And I believe it's because he's constantly just trying to show us, I am beyond limits. I am creative. You can't even guess the things that are inside me. As soon as they discover something else new, it it just blows us away on earth. And God is saying, this is an image of who I am. This is a reflection of who I am. And we read this during worship, but I want to look to Genesis 1, 26 through 27. And God says something that is absolutely life-changing for us. So Uh, Read along with me as it goes. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the air, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So not only does the mirror remind us that the Bible and the earth are all reflections of who Jesus is, It reminds us that we are created to bear the image of God. That when we look in the mirror, we are supposed to be and look like Jesus. That we are created to bear the image of God. And so God is loving. So when we love, we reflect his love to others. God is truthful. So when we tell the truth, we reflect his truthfulness to others. God is forgiving. So when we forgive others, we're reflecting his grace and his mercy to others. And this is why God makes such a huge deal about forgiving each other in the scripture. You you may have heard these things. He says things like, if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. He says, don't forgive seven times, but forgive how many? 77 times. And and he really means like there is no end. Okay, he's not actually saying make check marks. Um, He says, love your enemies. Be good to those who hate you. He makes a really serious deal about us Forgiving people. And do you know why? Because he is very committed to forgiving us. Because he takes forgiveness very seriously. And so when we are committed to extending grace, we mirror him. When we are committed to extending love and truth and peace, we mirror him. And that is the whole purpose of who we are. Our life is to be one of mirroring. It doesn't begin with us. It begins with God. And the goal is not for the world to know us but the goal is for the world to know him. So when you read the scripture, when you read the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament, ask yourself questions like, what is God like? What is this showing me he's like? 
What is, what is the nature? What is the character of who God is? And then, how can I be like that? How can I reflect that nature? How can I bear that image? How can my life look more like that so that I can mirror and be an image of who God wants me to be? And then you make adjustments from that standard. And you don't decide, well, everybody else in church is acting like this. That's my standard, so I'll be like that. You say, what does the word of God say the standard of truth is so that I can be an image of who God is? And that is the standard you start. This is really important to remember because according to Genesis, all people equally bear the image and likeness of God. Okay, catch this. All people equally bear the image of likeness of God. So male and female, young and old, rich and poor, first world and third world, born and unborn, healthy and sick. It's why, as Christ followers, we have a consistent worldview that believes all people are important, that all people are valuable. That's why, as believers in Jesus, we stand against killing the unborn. It's why we don't dishonor the elderly, and, and if they have nothing to give, we just, we just push them aside. It's why we don't believe in the survival of the fittest. It's why we have to go and help people that don't have the resources to help themselves and stand up for people who don't have a voice. We do this because we believe that all people bear the image and likeness of God. It's why we have to reject racism and classism and sexism and ageism because all people bear the image and likeness of God. That is the standard of truth. It is not our job to decide who is important. God has decided that. And I believe that this has profound implications on not only how we see God, but how we see ourselves and how we see others. Some people are, are richer and some people are smarter and some people are tougher or more competent or capable. Some people root for the Cleveland Browns, but <laughs> just kidding. But all are made in the image of God. And the scripture says that it's not when you become a believer you're made in the image of God. It's not when you follow Christ for 40 years and you look a lot like Jesus in your behavior and your attitudes you're in the image of God. That's not what the standard and the scripture says. It says that all people equally bear the image and likeness of God and therefore all have value and all have worth. Isaiah 53, 2 says, it's talking about Jesus prophetically, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his, his appearance that we should desire him. Now this is a prophetic voice speaking about Jesus and basically it's saying Jesus was average looking at best. God could have made him any way he wanted. He was God. He could have mixed up Brad Pitt's DNA with the rock, you know, and made this, this person. He could have done anything that he wanted. But I believe that in Joel Schreiber, in Joel Schreiber. <laughs> But but I believe, I believe that what the scripture is saying and what God wanted to communicate to us 
is that in a stark, clear way, Jesus didn't have to be handsome to have value. That Jesus was plain, and Jesus was average, and in fact, in a crowd, you might have not been able to pick him out because he looked a little bit like everybody else in that culture, but it didn't matter. Jesus did that on purpose because he wanted us to know that you do not have to be important in the world's standards to bear the image and the likeness of God. And that he does something in us, that the, the scripture births that identity in us that changes everything about the way we live our life on earth and will change everything about the way we live our life for eternity. You know, people didn't believe that Jesus was God because they didn't expect him to look like that. They wanted Jesus to come down and be rich and good looking and respectable so that their religious system would make them look good. They wanted someone who could redeem them to their jury of peers, not, not a God who comes down and cares about the poor and the sick and pays attention to the prostitutes and the tax collectors hiding in a tree. They wanted someone that looked different. But as you read and you study and you listen to the word of God in both Old and New Testaments, you, are see, you will see we are called to be image bearers. And as we learn more about Jesus, we have to adopt those things so that we can reflect more of who he is. All right, here's the second image today. It has a direct connection to the first. And it's of, a, of an apple and a, and a snake there. It kind of all goes together. And this represents sin. This represents sin. You know, after God had made everything in his image and everything in his likeness, we see the, the crafty serpent making its way onto the scene. And I want to read to you from Genesis 3.1. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? And as I read that this week, something so profound struck me, that the first thing that the enemy did was he questioned the authority of the word of God. He is always going to question the clarity and the authority of the word of God. The enemy is always going to say to you, mm, but does it really say that? But, but, but is that really what it says? Because, you know, you probably could get away with it this time. The enemy is always going to question the authority of the word of God. And just as the enemy came to our first parents... I believe he's going to come to you, and whatever destruction he has intended for your life, he will begin by trying to erode your confidence in the truthfulness and the helpfulness of the word of God. And I want to tell you, you need to fight that with all that is in you. Because that is the beginning of a crack that, if allowed to get in, could turn into a great chasm between you and your relationship with Christ. And the essence of the lie that led to the original sin, which has infected and affected everyone and everything since, was rooted in the issue of identity. It was rooted in the issue of the mirror. The very first thing that the enemy wanted to do was crack the mirror. Because can you imagine the horror when he realized that God was going to create every living thing to reflect him? He, he was already losing the, the game no matter what. And then can you imagine when we begin to live like that, when we begin to realize our identity and we begin to reflect him, how much damage we do to the cause of what the enemy wants. 
And as we look at the Bible and we study the way sin behaves, and if you do some research, and you'll probably talk about this on Wednesdays too, we see a pattern. Sin alienates, condemns, and kills. Sin gets you in the corner, tells you that you're not good enough, that your identity is broken, and then kills something in your life. Sin alienates, condemns, and kills, and then it repeats. And then it repeats. And first, it, it, it has you give up on who you think you are. And then your identity is just, is just completely off kilter. And then you're not walking in, the, in what, the God dream that God designed for you to do. And then that God dream dies because you don't feel like you can do it because you don't think that you're good enough and you made too many mistakes. And then your life is, is on this trajectory where he just gets you in the corner, sin alienates, condemns, and kills, and alienates, condemns, and kills, and does it over and over and over as often as he can. And the way to stop it is to stand strong and firm in our identity. And I love the words that God gave today to Ruth and to Lucy and, and this idea that, that it's so easy, it's so freeing, that God wants so badly to get us out of that cycle. But we must choose it, we must repent and turn and do something different and live a holy life. I want to bring us to 1 Peter in the New Testament, 1.16. It says, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do, for it is written. Go ahead and say that part out loud. Be holy because I am holy. In this passage, Peter's actually quoting the Old Testament. And so the people are recognizing this from the, from the things that they've heard in the past. And it's talking about a nation, the nation of Israel, who were called to be holy. And if you remember much about Israel in the Old Testament, they were, without a shadow of a doubt, they were uh, the, the, Israel, or the country that had the presence of God in their midst. There was no mistaking that Israel had the presence of God. There was a cloud above them. Sometimes there was fire. There was manna on the ground. God even showed up face to face to this country, to people in, this, in Israel. And without a doubt, Israel was special. People knew that Israel and God had a relationship. And God demands, God's presence demands purity. God's presence demands purity. So if you've read much of the Old Testament, there's chapters and there's chapters of specific instructions for these elaborate ceremonies of washing and, and of cleansing. You know, you dip it six times in the water, and then you get it out, and then you boil it in goat's blood, and all of those things. It says you have to do all this if this happens. And why? Why do you have to do that? Well, because they lived among a holy God, and they were called to be holy. And so they had to make sure everything was in order to be holy. They had to make sure it all followed the rules and was holy. So now in the New Testament, Peter is reminding them, remember when your, all your ancestors, they did all those things to make sure everything was holy and clean and cleansed? Well, I'm saying be holy, uh, Christ is saying be holy as I'm holy, but the difference is no longer do you need to sacrifice and cleanse and wash because Jesus Christ changed the covenant because he was the sacrifice. He made us clean. He did all that for us. So you don't have to go through all of those rituals anymore. And it's interesting, as, as I kind of been studying the, these rituals and what all this means, in God's word there are two symbols that really point to uh, the cleansing and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. There are two things, and they're fire and water. They're fire and water. And most of the places you see uh, the Holy Spirit working, as you read through the scripture, you see one of these elements. 
You see tongues of fire over their head at Pentecost, right? You see uh, Jesus being baptized. He comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit is there. Okay, so you see kind of this fire and water. So as you read through the scripture, look for those things. And so in the Old Testament, mostly Leviticus and Numbers, the rituals that they had uh, to do, they had to cleanse something, were broken into two categories, things that can be cleansed and things that can't be cleansed. There were things that can be cleansed and things that are impossible to be cleansed. And so the things that could be cleansed all involved water. For example, in Leviticus 11, it talks about if you touch a dead animal, you wash your clothes to get clean. Uh, If a clay pot is broken by a man, you should rinse it with water. If you have an infectious disease, bathe in water, shave off your hair. It all involved water. Water cleansed those situations. And the literal translation for the water actually was water that moves or flows. So it wasn't just stagnant water, it was living water. And spiritually it means water that can never be made unclean. That no matter how many dirty things you put in the water, no matter how many times you put the dirty things in the water, that it can never be made unclean. So rituals for things that couldn't be cleansed, rituals for things that there was no way to clean them with water, all involved fire. For example, in Leviticus 13, Anything with mildew in it, mildew in it, what do you do with that? How do you get rid of it? You burn it. You take it out back and you burn it. Cities that didn't honor God, they burned to the ground to cleanse them. That's the only way they knew how to get it cleansed. They couldn't wash it with water, so they have to burn it. Stolen possessions, once found, would be burned up. So in the New Testament, Jesus comes to earth. And the need for cleansing is still necessary. That didn't go away. Because God is still a holy God. And God still needs, the, his presence still demands purity, it demands holiness. But under the new covenant, the ultimate sacrifice came as God's son, Jesus. The ultimate cleansing vehicle came in the form of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the trump card. We, we don't need to dip three times in the water to be clean because we lied. We don't, we don't need to burn a city to the ground anymore for it to be redeemed. Because Jesus came and he changed all that. We need the living water. We need Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit to forgive our sins and remove them. And to redeem things that that are broken and redeem things that are not holy. I'm hoping this connects the dots for you. When you hear Jesus in the New Testament, he says to the woman in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus is that living water. Jesus is that water that that flows, that water that can never be made clean, unclean, that that water that you can put something dirty and broken and hurting and, and something sinful under it as many times as you need to. And the water never gets unclean because it's living water. It's always flowing. It provides cleansing from every kind of sin. And so the scripture says that anything that can be cleansed can be cleansed by the living water. And he's talking about us. We can be cleansed, but we need Jesus to do that. We need Jesus to cleanse us with his living water. I believe that the symbol of fire is also still used under the new covenant. And for those that decide, they determine that they will not receive the living water. At the end of, of time, on the day that we will all be judged, the sin 
will still have to be dealt with. And if the living water didn't cleanse that sin, the only other option in the presence of a holy God will be to cleanse it by fire. And we believe that those who don't accept the living water of Jesus spend eternity in fire, and it's not what God wants, but the presence of God demands purity. The presence of a holy God demands purity, and he gives us a way to be clean and new with the living water of Jesus, but if we don't choose that way, he has to take care of that sin another way. So we're going to just sort of end right here. I'm going to ask Rick to come up and play the keys, and would you just stand while I finish out this last little part, but don't check out, don't check out. I want to tell you today that if you're here and you're breathing, we have two things in common with each other. I believe that the standard, the word of God, says that no matter if you're a believer in Christ or not today, you are an image bearer of God because you were created by God. And the other fact of the matter is you have sin in your life. We're all image bearers of God, and we all have sin. And that sin needs to be cleansed because we live in the presence of a holy God. And there are two options to cleanse that. There's living water that, that, that is offered, that is available to everyone, that, that will cleanse your heart, that will not just make you better, but it'll make you new. It won't just give you a better life, it'll give you a new life. It'll redeem everything about who you are. It'll change all those situations that you walked in pain and in frustration with. And it'll help you have hope and and be able to turn things around. That that's available through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And in just a minute, if you want that, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you want one, I want you to just come up here and there's some pastors standing in the front and they're just going to talk you through it. They're just going to help you walk through an important step. They're not going to be weird. Don't worry. They're just going to talk to you and say, hey, do you understand this? Do you understand the implications of this? Let me help you get into a class. Let me help you get into a a, a conversation that you can just continue to understand. But I also want to encourage you, if you're here and you're already a believer in Jesus and you're like, yeah, yeah, I've accepted the living water, that you are an image, uh, image bearer of God. And all that God does is want other people to understand their image bearers of God. And everyone has equal image, equal likeness. And so today, I want you to pray for just a minute that God would send you this week. That God would send you to use these two simple images, and maybe you just show them, hey, here's a mirror and here's an apple, and and this is what she said on Sunday, and I don't know if I'm getting it quite right, but I want you to understand that God loves you so much that there's value already in you and that he wants to cleanse you, and there's two options, and will you pick the living water? And I hope that I'm giving you tools that will just allow and will just help you to be able to communicate this week the message of the scripture. And I want you to pray that there will be an opportunity God loves when we ask him that. God loves when we ask him that. God, would you just give me an opportunity to share the message of the word of God? And so that's what we're gonna do here in just a minute. We're gonna pray. 
And so if you are here and you want a relationship with Christ with living water and you've never had that before, I want you to just kind of make your way. It doesn't have to be dramatic or, you know, you don't have to draw attention to yourself. Just come on down to these folks here. And the rest of us, would you just close your eyes and let's just pray together. Father God, we love you. And we thank you so much that the whole uh, premise of your word, all 66 books, you have just desperately want to show us that you have made us in your image, in your likeness. And God, you love us so much and you want us to reflect and you want us to be uh, just like Jesus. And so we pray this week that you would show us the areas that we need to work on. God, that you would show us how we can be more forgiving and more loving and more truthful. That you would show us the the places that we're mirroring you and the places that we're not doing such a great job. And God, that you would give us the strength and the ability and, and the repentance that we need to get there. Dear Jesus, we repent of our sin. And we know, God, that that you are a holy God and your presence demands purity. And so it is with with humbleness, Lord, with the fear of of the Lord we come before you. And God, we say that, that, that we messed up, that there are things that we do not have an alignment with you. And God, we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, we know that when we do that, it's like the prodigal son running home, God, that you you open have open arms, Lord. And God, you want us to come more than we want to come. And so I pray that today we could have that moment with you, even now. God, that you would help this week look more like you. God, would you send us, would you give us opportunities to share this truth with someone? It may not feel eloquent, it may not feel perfect, but God, it is the truth of your word. And as believers in Jesus, it is our job to be sent. And so God, would you send us? Even if we say it a little begrudgingly right now, God, would you send us? Would you just say that out loud to the Lord right now? Just say, send me. Just send me this week to somewhere, to some place, to some grocery store, to some work environment, Lord, to some unexpected place, God. And I pray, Father, that our, our, our just um, antennas would be up to see, Lord, where you want us to describe these images. God, we trust you. We love you. We want your word to be a part of our life. We want to be anchored on the truth. And God, we give you praise and we give you glory for what you're doing today. And God, it's in your name we pray. Amen.